Tales from the Plantation Nation. Fresh. I look around for my mother and my little sister. What happened to my brother? Some motherfuckers killed him. Damn, my head's spinning and I'm sick to my stomach. Everything is pitch black and I can't see nothing. Everything was pitch black except the motherfuckers coming. I didn't mean to let them catch me. I was looking for my brother. All I know is that I feel an arm. Could be a foot, but a brother couldn't speak because his tongue they took. I was shook when I saw that fetus fall from the womb. But they came in the name of Jesus. Man, I'm confused. We was fooled. Our village was burnt in all our tools. And now I'm probably on this cruise in a nigga shark food if I can't make it. Where the fuck's my destination? To the land of milk and honey, but I'm naked and I'm hated and Satan told me speak another language. Damn. It's fucked up on this slave shit. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave shit. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave shit. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave shit. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave I look shit. around for my mother and my little sister. What happened to my brother? Some motherfuckers killed him. Damn, my head's spinning and I'm sick to my stomach. Everything pitch black and I can't see nothing. Coming down off this black robber, think about jumping. The big homie threw a meeting, but he ain't talking about nothing. All I know is that he got an L. Could be a rock, so he don't see it like they see it when they come to them cops. But some shit that I ain't about to stop. So they MIA, where they at? Working hard down in PIA. Private prisons make millions worth of CCA. Brunt making like a dollar a day. Man, when count time, time in your ass move, then you ain't dead. It's a toilet by my bed. I said, if count time come, if your ass move, then you ain't dead. Or it's a toilet by my bed. Or it's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. Plantation Nation. As always, whenever you're doing a live show, you sometimes run into some technical difficulties. This is Yusuf Hassan, co-host of Abolition Today, where you're listening to Tales from the Plantation on the Abolition Today platform. Uh, I'm going to hold it down until our brother Sam gets here. Uh, We just had him on the line. His call is dropped, but he has an exciting episode planned for everybody this evening. He's going to be welcomed by guests uh, Devon Champ-Woodley and King Eli to discuss the challenges of navigating the carceral system nationally from three perspectives. One, someone about to enter the belly of the beast. Two, people who have been in the belly of the beast. And number three, those who are still 
in the belly of the beast. The goal is to have a real conversation as Eli is scheduled to begin a bid in the upcoming weeks. In the spirit of changing the narrative, improving outcomes, we will have a real talk with Eli about what to expect and how best to make the time serve him and not vice versa. So without further ado, I think our brother Samuel Nathaniel Brown, the host of Tales from the Plantation Nation, is back on the line. Take it away, Sam. Peace, Brother Yusuf. Thank you very much. Shout out to Abolition Today. Every Sunday, same time as Tales from the Plantation Nation. That'll be four o'clock on you know Pacific time and seven o'clock Eastern. And we suggest that you tune in if you really want to be up to date and after breast was taking place in this fight across the nation to abolish slavery and bring freedom to all. You know, because like Martin Luther King said, until one of us, as long as one of us are oppressed, we're all oppressed. So today, I'd like to welcome everybody to Tales from the Plantation Nation. Sorry for the technical difficulties, but we are here, live from New York. Shout out to NYC, baby. You know what I mean? And uh, thank you all for joining us again at this show where we give voice to the voiceless, or to those who are often overtimes, oftentimes overlooked and forgotten. And our guest today is Devon Champ. Woodley, not Woolly, <laughs> excuse me for that, but Devon Champ Woodley. And I would like to, you know, formally introduce him and tell you a little bit about the brother. I would like to formally introduce you and, and tell you a little bit about Devon. <clears throat> excuse me. So um, just to give you a little insight, Devon Woodley was born and raised in Harlem. From childhood, Devon has been exposed to the effects of mass incarceration after his own father spent half of his life incarcerated. At the age of 24, he, too, was sentenced to four years in prison in upstate New York. During his incarceration, Devon has become a facilitator to help individuals inside transition home with a plan of action and resources to help lower recidivism, help foster holistic, healthy alternatives to living on the outside. Since being released, he has become a social justice leader for all formerly incarcerated individuals. He is an active campaign leader for JLUSA, Justice Leadership USA. For the hashtag Close Rikers campaign, that's right, Close Rikers, he was featured on the Fox News Good Day New York speaking on bail reform and advocating for the mass bailout. He has since been featured in several different media outlets discussing projects, um, discussing topics, excuse me, around being incarcerated himself, promoting successful reentry into society, and breaking barriers for individuals coming home from prison. Wow, brother, you're everywhere. After successfully completing parole in 2018, he has since served as a community board member for East Harlem Community Board 11, serving on the Human Services and Economic Development Committees, and graduated with a certification from John Jay in Human Services and Peer Navigation Social Architects. Wow, and the list goes on. Devon currently is a program coordinator at the Polo Ground Houses with the Center for Court Innovation under the Mayor's Action Plan. He works with neighborhood community residents to advance neighborhood safety concerns through a participatory budgeting process. Devon continues to strive for social justice as a mentor for the Children's Village Next Steps program, where he helps at-risk young adults ages 16 to 24 with advancing through high school and college by exposing them to opportunities outside of their community, as well as promoting holistic circling groups, emotional development, and motivational interviewing. Woo! You brother, welcome to Tales from the Plantation Nation. 
applause. Lots of applause. Oh yeah, you um, you seem you know not seem you are very accomplished. It seems like you took lemons and made lemonade. So introduce yourself, bro. Aside from what I just shared, just talk to the people. How you doing today? Well, you know, I'm just a kid from Harlem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, be real humble about it. Um, yeah. Uh, like to start off by letting everybody know, you know, Champ um, is a handle that I actually created and it was inspired by my father. Um, he just recently passed away in November of last year, 2023, 22. And um, yeah, he used to call me Champ all the time because I was a fighter, right? And um, uh, since being incarcerated, you know, um, I uh, I was giving my life to the Lord, and now these hands work for Jesus. You know what I mean? <laughs> so CHAMP actually stands for Christ handles all my problems. So I put my faith first before all things that I do. And um, I must say, being home now six years, um, I definitely had to put my faith first in a lot of areas of my life in order to achieve the level of success that I have been able to receive um, thus far. Um, being released in 2016. That's dope. It's an honor to have you here. Anytime we have someone that's been through or is going through um, the struggle and they decide to come back and, and not only improve the quality of their life, but also utilize the lessons that they learned and the resources that they acquired to help change the lives of others, we find that pretty admirable especially those who've been formerly incarcerated because, you know, we're looked at like we're selfish and we don't care about anybody else and then we scourge the society. So people like you help change that narrative. So so welcome, bro. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So it's, it's, let's begin by talking about your incarceration. So you served four years. Yeah, I was sentenced to a mandatory minimum on my first ever charge, first ever arrest four years. I wound up doing two years, 10 months, 25 days on that sentence because I received six months good time on early release for facilitating programs for um, people coming into incarceration for orientation and people leaving the facility re-entering back into society. Yeah. So was that a deal? Was that a plea bargain? No. um, Um. I actually was one of those people who thought I had a chance of taking my case to court. And, uh, you know, long story short, I blew trial. Um, definitely should have taken the plea, looking back on it now. But um, I live with no regrets because the time I served gave me a passion and a purpose in my life that I'm choosing to fulfill for the mm-hmm. rest of my life. That's always a blessing. That's That's something that we want to instill. And young Eli today, hopefully when we get him on the phone and talk to him about um, utilizing these situations that we're presented in life to actually improve upon our lives. And the reason why I asked you if you took a plea bargain, because over the course of the time that you served, I know you ran into a lot of guys who took deals. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. And oftentimes, the majority of the people who find themselves inside those courtrooms they plea out. You know, mm-hmm. I often heard that if all of us went to trial, that the court would be, like, so 
polluted and, and, and overwhelmed that they wouldn't even be able to process everybody, and they would have to find a different way. Have you ever heard that? that no, everybody, that actually everybody is a unique theory, though. No, that actually is a unique theory, though. Um, I'm not sure how it is in other states, but to put you on game here in New York, right, most people take the plea deal because they want to get out of Rikers Island, Tomb, Central Booking, wherever they are, because the correctional system within the five boroughs is a lot more horrid than doing time of state when you settle down to your spot. Um, there are men who are fighting the case, you know, didn't make bail at a certain point in time, who were serving anywhere between three weeks to five years on Rikers Island. And when push came to shove, they were taking a plea bargain just to get out of the situation that they were in. So if the plea decided to be any, um, if you did four years and you were sentenced to five, you know, you, only, you knew that the rest of the remainder of your time, you'd be able to see your loved ones you know, you'll be able to spend time with your wife and kids if you have conjugal visits, or you'll be able to receive the, you know, adequate health care, services, food, um, clothing that is essential to everyday living while incarcerated if you took a plea deal. Um, sometimes you'll take a plea deal because it's time served completely in its totality. Um, so it's just depending on whether, what the situation is. Uh, but I do I do want to know the numbers and the facts behind uh, if that theory is proven true. Um, maybe that's something that's left to be discovered, you know, making new movements. And, uh, yeah, it looks like we, we lost Sam again. Yeah, we so you, Right. So just to recap, we'll, I'll hold it down until I'm able to get him back on the line. Uh, not to get too personal, but were you sentenced under the Rockefeller drug laws or was it the, 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 uh, the new sentencing guidelines was no longer Rockefeller, but they, you mentioned mandatory minimums? Yeah. Um, well, thank you for that. I'll, I'll offer some clarification. No, it's not. Yeah, because I personal. did time in uh, New York too. Yeah, so it's not. It's it's it's. Uh, I had a violent charge. I had a assault in the first and attempted assault in the second. Uh, what a deadly mm-hmm. weapon! And um, the judge actually told me, you know, he wished he didn't have to offer me this much time, um, which was very interesting to hear because that's the first time I ever heard of someone giving a mandatory minimum. Um, prior to catching my kids, the most I knew about this side of the law was what I seen in the movies. So I always thought the judge had the right to determine how much time you had. So I still remember being scared and frightened and saying, well, maybe you can give me less time. Maybe you can give me something else. <laughs> and uh, looking back on that, you know, I, was, uh, I, I realized that the system – really didn't work for me. It definitely worked against me. You know, I had a paid lawyer, I had my own attorney, I had evidence feeding um, what the situation was. And looking back and looking at how the case was handled, 
it was actually very, it was actually, you know, put me in a unique position more so than anybody else because my child actually took a couple of days. It wasn't like in a matter of minutes or a same day. You know, it was a few days of deliberation, which I actually appreciated because it let me know that there were people who actually cared about how I was going to be handled in the criminal justice system. You know, um, that's why I say my situation is a little bit more unique to others. Um, but no, it didn't fall under the Rockefeller guidelines. You know, I was out in the town moving bricks or nothing. You know, <laughs> I was a good kid. I was a good kid. I was working two jobs. Um, at the time, I was going to school. I was going to Borough Manhattan Community College. And I was just trying, I was a young kid trying to support my daughter, you know, and um, unfortunately I was placed in a position to take me away from her for those four years. Thank you. And the rest of the reason why I ask you that, because we see that a lot in the criminal justice system. There's so many, like we say over, well over 90% of the people who are there took plea bargains, and you even have people who were innocent. You even have people who were innocent actually pleading out and saying that they were guilty because of those interrogative practices, because of the cops interviewing minors, you know, that I can't tell you how many guys are probably sitting in prison with life sentences because, uh, and they weren't even Mirandized properly, you know. And that's a part of why we have having this show right here right now, bro. It's very important. So we can talk about some of the things that, you know, with Eli that no one talked about to us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, could you tell me, so what was life like for you as entering the prison as a first-timer? Oh, man. Um, it was a huge culture shock to me. I mean, I only knew based off of what my father told me at the time and a few friends of mine who I've dealt with, you know, being in and out of city jail, right? Um, it was actually a very unique experience for me in, a, in, the, in the sense that it showed me that I was, you know, I was a good kid, right? Um, it was very innocent, and it, it came off a little gullible. Um, I had to learn really quickly how, you know, become self-aware or at least more self-aware and more observant of my surroundings. Um, I was actually, because it was my first time, I had no criminal history or anything, they kind of, uh, they kind of put my level based off of my crime. So I was actually, uh, in the tombs first, right, with everybody being processed to go upstate, serving life sentences. So mm-hmm. you have little me, right? I little, I'm a big dude. You know, I'm in I'm in a whole jail block. The dude serving life for 20 years and better. And here it is, you know. I'm telling him I got this little four year bid, and he's looking at me like like fish food. And um, I learned wow. really quickly. Yeah, I learned really quickly. Uh, um, how to be on guard. I lived in a state of like high anxiety for a few months there. And oh man, thank it's God, a, you know. Oh, I didn't heard about them prisons out here on the East Coast and yeah. in New York, bro. I've been locked up in yeah, New Orleans and locked up in Cali, but I never and I don't want to ever be locked up anywhere else. Let's be clear, don't want to ever be locked up again. Terrible again, bro. Never again. Yeah. So yo, I'm in here. Y'all, y'all can hear me. Yeah, yeah, we yes, can sir. hear you, Eli. Peace, bro. So, so I talked about both. 
uh, I talk about both experiences, right? So in the tomb, when I was locked up with um, everybody who was, you know, high classification, you know, they were either coming from, you know, upstate to come to the city to fight their case or they were on their way upstate like I was for the first time or for however many times they were before. Um, good things, you know, God bless me with the gift of gab. I got with some cool dudes from Harlem and I kind of stayed to myself. Um, that's really how I usually move. It wasn't that I was scared or afraid. It's just that I wanted to do my time as smoothly as possible. Uh, I was one of the fortunate ones to never be pushed up on, you know, messed with, like nobody treated me anything other than the man that I presented myself to be. And I led with a genuine heart throughout my entire bed. And I thank God I left there without a scratch. So those were some of the things I had to really, you know, give blessings for. Uh, when I got to Rikers Island, uh, I'm still in the same clothes <laughs> that I got sentenced with, you know, and thinking that I'm going to have an opportunity to get some clothes, change, get some drawers. Nah, I was on the island for 27 days with the same clothes I got sentenced in, 27 days. Right, so I was in the tomb for about a week, the same clothes. Then I got to update, uh, then I got to Rikers Island for 27 more days with the same exact clothes. And um, I talk about funky and disgusting. I mean, nobody want to mess with you there. <laughs> yeah, and man. I was all types of crazy. But uh, it really helped me understand, you know, the mistakes I've made in my life. And it really showed me, like, how the other side lives. Because um, I still remember getting calls from my, my pops when he was in Rikers, not fully understanding why, you know, he would get into arguments over the phone or understanding what a click was or, you know, um, uh, him arguing with people about who got next on the phone. So I got inside, and when we shared those experiences with each other a little after, you know, it, it really helped me understand his perspective, his trauma more, because now I share the same trauma. Wow. You ever talk to your father about what it was, you know, about that experience which you just shared right now? Yeah, I did. Um, way before he passed, <clears throat> I would say he started coming to see me when I was in uh, Marcy. That's when I was, uh, that was like my home jail, right? my home prison. When I was in Marcy, um, he came to see me at least once a month. And he would always give me like his jail book, Bible, one-on-one class on the do's and don'ts, and I had to let him know, like, I found a way to handle myself. Um, there were some experiences that were too hard to talk about, as far as, like, seeing people get cut, stabbed, slashed, fights, breaking out, people getting killed, ODing, you know, all these things actually happened on the facility. Um, when I came home and I shared it with him, you know, I, I saw that he never really dealt with it, so he was never the right person to talk to about it. Um, it wasn't until I got into a band, band of brothers, a circle called All Kings. All and Kings. That's why I was a, yeah, that's why I was able right. to be brief from, you know, all my anger and frustration from being incarcerated, as well as the frustration I was receiving upon being released. You know, um, mental health is not catered to, as, as far as I know. Um, in most places, in most prisons, I'll speak for New York specifically, you tell somebody you are having anxiety, you're going through something, 
you're struggling mentally, they also they automatically classify you as MO. Right. Um MO? that is one of the MO is um mental outpatient on uh, like a like a mental case, right? Um gotta remember when you use these terms, not all of us listening, all of our listeners are familiar with there the you language. Go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, seven thirty, you know, <laughs> they think it's <laughs> crazy, right? That's when you do the med run. The, the psychiatric drug run is, is at 7.30 at night or 7.30 in the morning, um, which is a unique quality to to be in, um, <laughs> unique position, I would say, to be in. Um, but I know all about it, man. They be out there like zombies. You see them dudes lined up for the meds. It's such a yeah. sad sight, isn't it? Yeah. So the, the, the saddest part is, is that you tell them that you need help and you're going through something, they're so quick to put you on some medication without actually understanding your current situation, right? You could say your family died and you're depressed. Now all of a sudden you're taking antidepressants. No, I just wanted to have some form of grief counseling. Talk to my, you're say, right. Hey, talk look. To yeah, you could say, hey, look, I saw somebody get stabbed in the yard or somebody get cut straight across the face. It's traumatizing. Well, tell me more about this. Now you're classified as a snitch because there's a traumatizing situation that happened to you that you do need to talk about, that you do need to debrief from, but you can't share that information because that is now going to cause you to put yourself in more trouble. So you just shut up and hold it all in. You don't say nothing about it because, again, mental health isn't a top priority in a prison industrial complex. So these are some of the things that I was able to, to... to work through upon being released. And that's why I'm such an advocate for reentry services now and um, making sure men and women uh, have the ability or the capability of going through those processes of catering to their mental health. That's so crucial, and thank you for sharing that. And, yeah, we have adverse childhood experiences, but we have that what people don't really talk about because it hasn't been classified as a thing, what you're mentioning right now, or adverse prison experiences, you know, apes. Because when I walk in, I saw a guy get stabbed like 60-something times, bro, right before my face. And prior to him, I seen like two men get raped. Mm-hmm. And just seeing that, you know, what it did to my mind state and my mentality, the first thing you go into, oh, no, not me, dog, not me. <laughs> it ain't going to happen to me. I'm I'm going to fight to the death. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going out. So when you see stuff like that, it sends you in this fight or flight. You know, it activates all of the all of the, the immunocortial cortics and the cortisol and the epinephrine and everything that's running through your veins to get you fired up. But then you never go back to homeostasis. Your body never relaxes again. You're constantly having those those neurochemicals racing through your brain, racing through your bloodstream. You're stressed out. I mean, it's it's, it's a lot. And and if that isn't enough. Um, you then have desensitization because we'll sit there and watch a real violent act. They'll shut the yard down, come clean it up, clean the blood up, and then they'll say, resume, continue, carry on. You just seen this dude get his head cut off. You know what I mean? No big deal. Finish eating your oatmeal and laughing like this just didn't happen. You know, so prison, the way it's currently set up, it has a, a really counterproductive impact at times. You have to really work hard to combat those impacts and those effects of adverse prison experience. 
It's, um, so what you're saying is crucial, and it brings me to something I want to talk about when we actually start talking to Eli right now, because now you and I have been in. You did four years. I did 24 years. we both back in the community trying to prevent people from ever going to the prison, you know, and help those who are coming out of the prison. And it seems like in our communities, in the black and brown communities, almost like going to prison is a rite of passage. You know, this is something I was paying attention to while I was incarcerated. Typically, in the indigenous cultures, when the men are coming of age, you know, they would leave home and go participate in a ceremonial process similar to like a nature quest or a city quest or something mm -hmm. that was like a rite of passage. And here in our country, you know, in Western civilization, what we have, what we face with in America, our rite of passage that would have normally been a, a, a natural process to help you transition from boyhood until manhood is one which finds you adopting criminality and thinking that you have to live by these certain ideals and values to be seen as a man, you know, and, and get it how you live. And so as a result, we oftentimes find ourselves in prison thinking like, oh, I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to go through this. It's part of my journey. You know what I'm saying? I'm building my name for myself. And any rite of passage has six elements. One, the person has to leave the home. Two, they have to go through something that only they can solve on their own. Three, they have to learn the ways of their culture. Four, it has to be like a ceremonial death. You know, five, it has to be a ceremonial rebirth. And then six, they return back to their people to teach what they learn. That's the six elements of the pillars of a rite of passage. And we find that now in mass incarceration for those of us who left home, went through something only we can deal with on our own, learned about our culture, learned about the terrain, what's going on in the country, systemic racism. It was like a death. Because being in that cell is like a death, you know, and a, and a rebirth process. And now we came back, and we're here to give to the people. And so being born a boy is a physical process. Being born a man is a psychological process. And that's that rite of passage we're going to talk about. So right now we're going to go to These Are the Facts, featuring my girl Tanya Mack, talking about investing, investing in the black community, investing in people who are formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated, and the difference that investing makes. Because we're here to invest in Eli today, and that's why we're having this call, and all the Eli's around the world. So we'll be right back. This is Tales from the Plantation Nation, live from New York. You know what I'm saying? I'm your host, Sam Brown, and these are the facts. Let's go. You Hello, my name is Tanya Mack. I am your sister, I'm your homegirl, and I'm your friend. And these are the facts. According to a 2016 report by the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, Formerly incarcerated individuals are almost 50% more likely to become entrepreneurs than the general population. According to a 2020 report by the National Bureau of Economic Research, 9.2% of black business owners in the United States have a history of incarceration, and that's compared to 3.3% of white business owners. According to a 2020 report by the Brookings Institution, having a criminal record reduces the likelihood of becoming an entrepreneur by 50%. A 2019 report by the Prison Policy Initiative found that formerly incarcerated individuals face significant barriers to accessing um, financial services, including investing and investors. 
data on this topic is not readily available. And when I say data, I mean um, the percentage of formerly incarcerated individuals who receive venture capital funding. But according to a 2018 report by the Center of American Progress, they found, and this is not surprising, that formerly incarcerated individuals face significant barriers to accessing any type of funding for small businesses and small business creation. According to a 2019 report by the FDIC, 25.4% of formerly incarcerated individuals are unbanked and an additional 28.4% are underbanked. And we're going to get into that, the definitions, what's the difference between unbanked and underbanked. According to a 2019 report by the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, formerly incarcerated individuals who start their own businesses are less likely to return to prison than those who do not. The impact of access to capital on entrepreneurship among formerly incarcerated individuals is surprising. According to a 2018 report by the Center for American Progress, increasing access to capital for formerly incarcerated individuals significantly increases their rates of entrepreneurship and contributes to economic growth. According to a report by the California Association of Realtors, as of 2020, the home ownership rate for black households in California was 35%, compared to 60% for white households. According to data from the Census Bureau, as of 2020, the home ownership rate for black households in the United States was 44%, compared to 74% for white households. This disparity in home ownership rates contributes to wealth inequality and also limits opportunities for black families to build generational wealth through home ownership. According to a report by the National Association of Realtors, as of 2020, the home ownership rate for black households in Georgia was 42% compared to 73% for white households. In Texas, the data is staggering. In Texas, for black households, home ownership rate was 41% compared to 66% for white households. According to a report by the National Association of Realtors as of 2020, the home ownership rate for black households in Louisiana was 38% compared to 72% for white households. The report further notes that systemic barriers to home ownership, such as discrimination in lending and housing policies, have directly contributed to the gap in the home ownership rate. These have been the facts. No spin, no blend, put nothing in. Strictly the facts. Tales from the Plantation Nation. Well, welcome back to Tales from the Plantation Nation. This is Yusuf Hassan, once again, co-host of the Abolition Today podcast, holding it down for Brother Sam until we're able to get him back on the line. Uh, you just heard 
Tanya Mack with These Are The Facts. And we're joined right now by his guest, Devon Champ-Woodley. Uh, as a community activist, I'm sure you have a lot of feedback to what you just heard. So I'll pass it off to you first, brother. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just want to double check. Can you hear me well? Can you hear me all right? I hear you well. Yes, I hear Perfect. you well. So glad to hear that. All right, so yeah, um, there was one piece that I actually was inspired to, to talk about. You know, it is very true. Um, a lot of reasons why um, people find themselves in a position um, to where their life considers incarceration, right? Whether it's part of their story or one that they never thought would be a part of their story is the lack of access to resources, right? Um, there's actually, there are actually a lot of people I know who, um, through my journey of reentry, have shown me that creating your own source of income, your own resource, um, building your own organization, initiatives, can reduce re- uh, recidivism, you know, can, can inspire, can reduce recidivism, I apologize. Um, uh, no apology necessary. That is driven by an idea to move the community forward, the nation forward, is actually something that's actually very pivotal in this work right now. Um, anything that is surrounded by supporting a foundation of, uh, of creating a foundation for men and women coming home from incarceration, and giving them a sense of purpose and a drive, especially when it's in their own community and they have lived-in experience, it's shown that it can actually foster and cultivate um, growing communities, you know, to the point where they fight back against gentrification. They advocate for certain stores to be there or not to be there. Or even they create and support their own businesses in their local communities that have that employ or are uh, brick and mortar ran by former incarcerated individuals. Um, I, I, I love everything. Yeah, I loved everything that she had to say surrounding that. And who was that? Oh, Miss Mack. Yeah, Miss Mack. What she was talking about. Right. And that was the yeah. purpose of uh, these are the facts to let it be known that when you invest, it makes all the difference in the world. Um that people who are formerly incarcerated, almost none of them return to prison. And so that, that should be a trend that we should want to get behind and follow. So I want to introduce Eli, because just now you made a valuable point um, talking about investing. And there's more than one way to invest. When we think investments, people oftentimes think money. That's not necessarily what we're talking about all the time. It's not about money. There's also the thing called social capital. And social capital are the connections that you have the people in your community that you can turn to that are outside of your immediate, like, environment that will provide you an opportunity or a leg up or some insight or some wisdom that you can't get maybe inside your own home. It might be a doctor. It might be a school teacher. It might be an alderman. It might be a a politician. You know, typically the social capital in the inner cities are limited. People in the inner cities don't have too many people they can turn to, and that's just the cold, hard truth versus somebody from a more affluent area who may have grown up with a variety of people from a host of different backgrounds that they can access at any given time. That stuff matters. Um, so I want Eli to now come on and introduce himself. Brother Eli, you there? Yeah, I'm here. 
So welcome to Tales from the Plantation Nation, bro. Thank you, bro. Right on. So um, your story is very interesting. Uh, I was telling you before because you, you're on your way to prison, bro. Um, yeah. And the difference is for you, you have Davon. You got me. You got all kings. And so you got us here to ask questions and get some insight from. So seeing this how this is your first time, I, I know this is going to be challenging. Never asked nobody to do this before, but what's running through your mind, man? What's some of the concerns that you have? What's some of the things you're thinking? Uh, just how to survive. And um, since I don't know nobody on the inside, just because I'm not a people person, it's just how to act around people. I got no social skills and I'm just overthinking everything that possibly that could happen. Everything wrong that could happen. And when you say everything that could wrong possibly could possibly happen, I mean you can't you can't ever stop everything from from ever happening. It's it's just about the things that you do right. All it's a lot of things can go wrong, but it really boils down to the things that you do right. What's the main concern for you? Is it like family? Is it relationship? What's all of the above? It's just the people, like, who's going to be there when I need them? Because people showing their true colors now. So it's like when I get when I go to jail, who's going to be there when I need them? Who's going to let me call them? Like, family and shit like that. Well, there's some things I definitely want to say to you. You know, I, wanna, I really want to get deep and have a real conversation because there's so many people out there who has a loved one that is either in the carceral setting or going to go into the carceral setting. And this is a dynamic conversation that we never get to have take place in public. Or and it probably doesn't take place everywhere. I mean, because let's look at you. Do you have any, like, father or brothers or uncles that you can have this discussion with? I do, but not at the moment. Okay, see. So it's a whole, it's a host of people out there who need to hear this conversation. And that's why we're having it right now. So when we come back, I'm going to let Devon um, dig into what insight I know he want to provide to somebody that's going in for the first time. Right now, we want to jump into the artist going the hardest. And the artist going the hardest is brought to you by Aim for the Heart. And this week's artist going the hardest is Gasworks. And Gasworks, oh, man, that's my guy. You know, this this brother is a hard worker. And when I say hard worker, I don't mean like I'm just in the studio. I mean now nah, because we all know that the studio, just pay overnight and you have to do something until the studio can come through until you can make music your reality and that requires you to man up and go out there and get your hands dirty and my boy and when I say and again when I say get your hands dirty I don't mean crime but I mean go out there and get you a vocational skill work a nine to five do what it is that you have to do sacrifice to take care of your family in addition to being a real motherfucker on the mic and in the street so shout out to gas you're the artist going the hardest and this is a song called hard to love and we'll be back Oh yeah, oh yeah. Let's go, let's go. Oh yeah. Can you show me? Show me how to love you 'cause I'm falling and I'm so dead. I said I don't wanna you to talking about my lonely. They were talking down until they seen it through a saucy. I know that I'm hard to love I don't make it easy to try 
My heart is faking, help me fill it up And I don't wanna be the one to do you because of me, I got you where I want now. I'm in it way today. If you break my heart, then it's right back to the street. Cause all the wrong I've done finally catching up to me. Oh, I know I got issues that I can't ignore. You the angel that I've been praying for. Just wanna be everything that you need me to be. Can't you see? You must be used to me lying. You know that I'm a player too. I know you're tired of waiting and trying. Marinate you right just like the perfect recipe Just wanna keep this blood burning like a third degree So let me know what you want it to be Show me how to like it Cause I'm falling and I'm so dead Then I don't wanna eat the fucking by my lonely They was talking down until I seen it through a saucy Now these booty bitches on me oh, I know that I'm hard to love I don't make it easy to trust yeah. My heart is faking, help me feel it up and I don't wanna be the one to do you Remember when we were running wild Me and you would run the town If I had a pack, you made it back And you would run it down You would walk a hundred miles I ain't have to dumb it down Feel the same pain from the pains When you love your child We was in the game But I never seen you gain a foul Hustle never changed It remained, you were quick to die If I met you back in the day You would've paid me If I got my bands from the blade You would've paid me Food stamps, government aid She going crazy PPP spending, investing I'm getting lazy She my Lil' yeah, yeah, who? My little baby. I'm a daddy, dad, dad. You could never play me. Never learned to trust. Got it after mud. Still recovering from lush. Shit, I'm hard to love. Blue strips like a crip, red bottom blood. Wish I knew how to commit, but I got a grudge. Show me how to love you. Yeah. I'm falling and I'm so dead. Then I don't wanna use the thug and my lonely. They was talking down until they seen it through a saucy. Now these booty bitches on me. Don't make it easy to try My heart is faking, help me fill it up And I don't wanna be the one to do you wrong Go ahead, Devon. Okay. I'll go first. Um, 
So when I went inside, I was already four years into a relationship with this beautiful woman. Um, she held me down the entire time I was inside. And um, the greatest thing is, is that we were able to maintain some form of relationship once I was released for about two years after I got out until we decided to part ways. Um, it's always a unique dynamic. Um, I remember someone inside telling me what the judge told them, you know, uh, well, telling me some, something that someone else told them. I said, a judge, I apologize. They said, y'all didn't break up. The judge broke you up, right? And society has a way of creating a divide within our communities and our family to kind of disrupt the support system that we hold nearest and dearest to our heart. And it could be so many different things. It could be a financial factor. It could be communication factor. It could be how we, how we have to adjust in our behavior and mannerism when um, we're around our loved ones or the fact that we're not around our loved ones. And it's really a rediscovering of self, but also testing the relationship to see how well it would last. Um, this is a topic that is all too often discussed uh, in, in these circles because, you know, we have men who, men or women who are listening into this call and they are in, uh, they're married. Some places have conjugal visits. Some places don't have conjugal visits. Um, some places, you know, you can't even touch your family. Right, you're you're talking through a glass wall. Um, it's very important to maintain that relationship, that dynamic, through genuine love and communication. I know right. that for me, uh, while doing the time, it was important to keep that relationship alive for me because it gave me some form of purpose. Um, not just as a provider, but looking forward to coming home to being intimate with someone. And that's something I truly did miss for a long time. And uh, for her, speaking on her behalf, I know it was very trying, too, because we were so dependent on our relationship. And that's what made it so amazing that when we were apart, it became so much harder to lean on each other because we weren't physically there for one another. Um, but through many letters, conversations, visits, and just overall genuine support of one another, we were able to make it through. It's, it gets a little bit trickier when you come out on the other side of it, you know. Um, it's, it's interesting because I've speak, spoken to men who dealt with trauma and PTSD who come home from doing a tour of war and how similar it sounds to men being released from incarceration. Um, the level of trauma is very similar in the sense that um, you're sensitive to certain things. Your behavior has grown into a certain person that you had to be for however many number of years, and your loved ones aren't used to seeing you this way. I can't tell you how many right. times I've gotten into an argument with my lady at the time, um, the, the woman I was with at the time, and she told me, you're not the same man you, I remember you're not the person I fell in love with. 
And that struck mm-hmm. a dagger into my heart because I became a changed man on purpose in prison. But there's also a gift and a curse to that. You know, I still remember it took me about a good week to stop taking a shower with my drawers on. She thought that was weird, right? Uh, it took, right. It, I, I still remember, you know, um, you know, I might laugh at this, but he'll know why. You know, whenever I, I was done with my plate at the table, I would bang in the table with the silverware, right? So that's like how you excuse yourself from the table while you're outside, you know? Um, and then there was just certain things about me that just changed. Like, I would have a walk on the inside of the street, of course, because I'm a gentleman. But if people were too close to us, I'd make sure that we would fall back. And she would be scared because she would think that something bad was going to happen. Still remember the first time I went to a mall, right? Can't remember where it was, but I remember how it made me feel. I had the most extreme moment of social anxiety I've ever had in my life. And I'm an extrovert. And that says a lot about me because I'm an outgoing person. I just gotten so used to not being around so many people that when I'm like in a cluster I've hyperventilated. I have asthma. I call it an asthma attack. And it was a huge adjustment for her because there were certain things that I got so used to that I had to learn to readjust because now I'm back in society. Um, for some of y'all, I, hopefully this makes you laugh, I had to learn how to cuddle again. All right? I'm, I'm very affectionate. <laughs> I, I had to learn how to cuddle again. I got so used to sleeping in a certain position and not moving. Right, like I still remember, you know, uh, I got my, I'm a big dude, right? I'm, I'm, I'm six one, two sixty, right? I got me a king size bed. I wanted a huge bed. I was on my list um, when I came home. I'm, I'm, I was tired of sleeping on an extra long twin size bed, right? I got me a, a king size bed. I remember rolling over, waking up in cold sweats, thinking I fell off the top bunk, and I'm still in the bed. Right. And um, uh, I still remember, you know, one night I I wasn't having a nightmare. It was just hard for me to fall asleep because, you know, I'm still adjusting. And I find myself falling asleep and she tries to kiss me on the cheek. Right. And I wake up and I'm ready to throw hands, you know, and Mm. these are things that I'm not used to anybody touching you. Exactly. Like anytime somebody touched you in prison, it, it was never good. You know, and um, yeah, the extent uh, of touching for me was like a handshake and that, that handshake hug thing. That was it. That's it. That's like, it. But I, I we had to my girl, like, we running your, I had to explain to her, like, running your fingers along my body and touching on me. That stuff was so foreign. I was in prison for 24 years and I didn't mess with men. So there was no touching on me. If it wasn't that handshake mm-hmm. hug, everything else was foreign. And so that's the type exactly. of stuff that it takes a great deal of getting used to upon your release. And a lot of the things you explained were like mental and also manifested on the external that you were doing personally. But there's also like interaction with your mate um, upon your release and also while you're incarcerated. And that's something I want us to talk to Brother Eli about right now too because basically you manage a relationship through letters, visits, and 15-minute phone calls. And that can be very challenging. And so if I was to offer you something about that, Eli, I would I would say um, always be grateful, bro, because while I, while I did 
attempt to hold on to being grateful while I was incarcerated, there were times where I wasn't. I wasn't carrying myself like someone who was grateful. And I look back now and I, re- I recognize that. And so you didn't put, your, your loved ones didn't put you in prison. Your girl didn't put you in prison. Your mom didn't put you in prison. None of them people put you in prison. When you go to do this bid, any love they show you, on one hand, you might feel like, well, you accepted this responsibility of being my woman. This comes with the territory. And that is legit. If you sign on as being my woman and I'm incarcerated, there are certain things that we need in order for this relationship to work. That is true. With that said, that needs to be tempered with that understanding that no one owes you anything. And anything that you get, you should really be grateful for it. And that gratefulness will keep you humble and appreciative and make it will erase a lot of stress. I'm going to add something to that. Are you, so uh, what you think about that, Eli? Um, taking it in, I was just worried about um, the communication part while I'm in there because I feel like because um, I'm not a people person already, and being around a bunch of men, I'm already, I already feel like I'm going to shut down all emotions and all that. So I'm worried about releasing that onto my girl when I'm calling her and being emotionless, and that's something I'm worried about. Well, yeah. uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I wanted to jump in, you know, a lot of the worries that you have currently are ones that are truly taking place at the moment, right? Um, these are skills you because, you're on the phone, because you're on the phone with brothers like us right now and fellow kings. This is a great time to build that communication that you would want once you get inside. You know, um, that is something that I lack. That is something I wish I could have done. Um, Maybe our relationship would have turned out a little bit differently. Um, We didn't really have those conversations until I I was released. You know, um, I'll give you a prime example. You know, the entire bed I was away, she told people that I was, like, traveling overseas, starting businesses and whatnot, right? I didn't mind because... She had some form of shame around it that I couldn't address, right, because I'm not in the world, right? And um, she didn't want to deal with the embarrassment of explaining it to other people. And I, and at the time, I thought that I was messed up. I thought I was real fucked up. I'm your man. You're supposed to hold me down no matter what. But I didn't understand how she felt, right? It's up to me to open up that space for communication, and really dive into why she feels the way that she does. I spent so much time being angry around the conversations we didn't have while we was incarcerated, as opposed mm. to focusing on the ones we should be having during and post-incarceration. So you're actually in a position right now to lean on your woman and let her know how you feel going in. Cast your worries onto your partner. She's your helping. She's truly your real. She'll she'll find a way to figure it out with you. Instead of focusing on the barriers, focus on the opportunities. Keeping it very real. If you go ahead and you go in with this mindset about things that you are worried about, right, that are completely out of your control, you're taking away the time and space and opportunity for you to be in control of them, which is right now. Yeah. That's beautiful advice. Beautiful advice. Because if you go in worried about it and then you do your time worried about it, then you come out tripping on it. 
because that's the other part. Like, yeah. when I came out tripping, I thought I had myself under control, but I didn't rely on my helpmate, like you just said, like that. And, you know, prison comes with a lot of, I'm used to doing things by myself. It comes with a lot of suspicion, not knowing who to trust with the life that we live. And if you don't make a conscious effort to deal with those things, to do the work, like the stuff that we do over the weekends and then all kings and everything and 10 P programs, if you don't make it a conscious effort to like take those things on head, head on, they'll surface when you least expect it and have the potential to ruin your relationships. And I can speak from that from, you know, firsthand experience. So that's why we're having these discussions because each one teaches one. We, we accept our level of culpability. Don't mean that the other person is perfect, but we're here doing this work and we're growing and we're learning. And so we're passing it on so others can learn and grow because it's important to celebrate the women that stay down with us when we be incarcerated. And this whole discussion yeah. is not about women, but this is a portion of what's important when a person is in a carceral setting. And not just women, but, when, but your mom. I mean, your sister, your auntie, but even like the men that stay down with women when they're incarcerated. It's always important to cherish and celebrate those people that stay down with you. I just want to especially say for the women, because it's a stigma that comes with loving somebody in a carceral setting. And they be having to deal with that stigma in and of themselves when they tell somebody that their man is in jail. Like you just said, she didn't even want to admit it. You know, my mine was a champion of my of the cause for people incarcerated and so forth and so on. So, but there's still a stigma that comes along with it. And our women wear that scarlet letter. They still champion for us. And I hate, I used to hate sitting in the pen and watching those dudes talking about, oh, yeah, I'm going to have this bitch send me a package. So I'm just fucking over my baby mom. And I used to throw was like this. I used to look at them dudes like scum. Because here you got somebody that's really looking out for you, doing their best, sacrificing, and you call yourself trying to take advantage and ain't even trying to better yourself. So never wanted to be one of those people. And I hate it when the sisters or the women that stood by the men in prison got, you know, messed over or hurt it because I really want those stories to be successful because we need more of it. Right? Yeah. Something else, Eli, like you talked about the guys, the relationships, the peers or the people around you and communicating with them. Is there a possibility you got to put a demo down on somebody when you go up in there? It's always a possibility of that because you're surrounded by mental health issues. You're surrounded by people who are afraid and they're trying to make names for themselves. I mean, it's a lot of stuff going on. Is there a possibility that you can play past that? There is a possibility you can do that as well. So for me, my advice as far as like dealing with the men or even dealing with relationships, again, this is just my hindsight. What nobody told me when I went into prison, nobody said, you know, first of all, I had life. I had a life sentence. And because I had a life sentence, I never knew when I was coming home. But for people that go to prison that actually know when they're coming home, some people might say, don't count days. Me, I would say break your time down into increments of things that you want to get accomplished. You know what I'm saying? Because if you got like 18 months or if you got 24 months or whatever, you break it down into six-month intervals or 12-month intervals and just start setting goals for yourself, like accomplishment hacks or body hacks. And when you do that and start familiarizing yourself with how your system works, how you think, how the spirit works, things that you can get accomplished, that time is going to fly by. And you're going to stay doing something that keeps you in your own zone, in your own world. When you're seeking to improve yourself, you're going to come out a better man, a better husband, a better mate. And most likely, you will offer improvements to the people around you. Because when you start reading and learning, you're going to see guys gravitate towards you. And they're going to want to have some of that. And oftentimes, when you share that, a person's not going to want to lose that resource. So for me, I would just say, keep your eyes open. Of course, you don't have to do no, no... 
you know, stuff that you feel like compromises your personal integrity, but focus on bettering yourself. And while you focus on bettering yourself, it's going to automatically translate to you wanting to help the people that are around you. And that will help, like, through that, through that environment and make it a, a smooth transition. So that's something that I, I really wanted to express to you because that's what we're doing with this phone call is to really talk to you and let you know that you got, you got a support network and you don't have to go in and do some of the things that I did or other people did. You don't have to waste 10 years trying to figure it out, getting, you know, getting into altercations and things like that. Yeah. So just to share a little bit about what I've been talking with Eli on the side about is like, okay, your thoughts, that's the, whatever you manifest in your mind has a way of coming true, right? Um, as a, you ever heard of the quote, as a man think of, so is he, right? That, that, that statement is very factual. There Let me jump in real quick. Are, Let me jump in and say this. Um, you should do your autodidactic. Autodidactic means like self-taught, self-learned study. And in doing so, go pick up the book called As a Man Thinketh by James Allen. As a man thinking, it's a must read. Go ahead, Brother Devon. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that. Um, what I will ultimately say to you is, you know, find some affirmation that you hold true for yourself, right? I used to, I read a very powerful book, um, and I actually utilized every exercise that was in the book. There was a book by Hill Harper called Letters to an Incarcerated Brother, and he's literally mm-hmm. writing letters to a young man as he grows up in in his incarceration. And he's giving them helpful tools, tips, and it's something that I actually implemented and my entire time. And the reason why I'm I'm sharing this with you is because in our conversations, and even in this one right now, a lot of things that pop up, and it's going to remain true for a while. You know, it takes 21 days to develop a new habit is the overthinking, right? This, yeah. this, is a, this is going to be a very challenging part in your life because this is the most out of control you're going to feel ever. And it's actually a very much, it's actually a growing experience, if I must say. You know, um, is it hard? Absolutely. You know, um, anybody on, on this call will tell you if a family member dies, you want to be there with your family. Right. Mm-hmm. What if uh, what if the, the security says no? You don't have clearance to go to the funeral. You know what I'm saying? You have to deal with that. You know, if uh, if you have a family member that's on their deathbed, same thing. You're not in control of that. And once you take control of what you are capable of doing, life is going to feel a little bit easier because you're less concerned about the. Out, outward obstacles and more focused about the things that are hindering you and you take back power and control of the situation that you know for a fact is going to drive you home as opposed to getting into more trouble, getting into um, deeper issues, getting into different situations that's going to knock you off your block and take you away from the people who are looking forward to you coming home at a specific yeah. date. Your release date is their release date. You see what I'm saying? And focusing on any other 
anything else outside of that is just going to hinder you reaching that goal. Mm. Brother Eli, you got some feedback on that? I'm just taking it all in. I um, The part with the overthinking and me not being able to control, that's something I'm still trying to mentally grasp because you know, you two know everything going on in my life and uh, everything with my mom and it's just something I naturally worry about. I think anybody would naturally worry about that. But um, you like do. you said, I have no control. That you you really do um, make a good point. And part of understanding what you know now is walking in with the mentality that you know you're not in control of certain things. You will no longer yeah. be able to decide when you shower. You can't just you can't even just use the bathroom when you want to anymore because it's gonna be somebody around, you might have to put up a sheet, see what the situation looks like. I mean, all manner of things. You can't go to the canteen by yourself. You can't get food without somebody. You have to rely on somebody for almost everything. And if you don't learn anything else in prison, you should, we, we should learn patience. And it sounds good. But the fact of the matter is just having a conversation right now gives you an advantage. Like G.I. Joe said, no one is half the battle. No one had these conversations with me when I went in. They gave me knife, a knife. They gave me weed. They gave me alcohol. They told me to prepare for a race riot. And other than that, you know, just that's it. A couple of people handed me books and told me to get what I needed as far as knowledge itself. So in the spirit of that, I'm now taking it a step further. And I'm going to give you five areas, bro that you should concentrate on during the incarceration, not just you, but anybody. And these were five areas that were crucial to my personal evolution, but not only my personal evolution, but everybody who I know who went through this, this you know, this experience and came out with a shred of, of, of a modicum of their mind, you know what I'm saying, and, and the ability to thrive. And so those five things I would tell you, Brother Eli, when you go in the pen, bro, do your body work, work on your body, yeah. Work on your mind. You know what I'm saying? When I say work on your body, what I mean by that is like start experimenting it with yourself. Stop eating salt. See what it's like to stop eating red meat. See what it's like to stop eating meat, period. See what it's like to fast all day. You know, you might be doing these things already. See what it's like to eat one meal a day or, or you know, change the base of your food. Stop eating sugar. Start seeing the different responses and the way your body responds when you take these poisons away that we, we don't even think about right now. We just consume them. Do stuff like that. Make you a consistent workout routine and see how the consistent pattern actually changes your body inside and out. See those differences. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Give yourself an opportunity to experience that. So, one, work on your body. Two, work on your mind. Really meditate. Take the time to put shut everything down and, and, and be gentle with yourself, man. Sit there. And you create your own bubble in the midst of the chaos. Create your own little space because you're going to have to learn how to do that because the, the stuff around you is never going to stop. You could be in a prison cell. You could be in a day room. You could be in a dorm. Those people around you are never going to stop doing what they're doing. So you have to learn how to carve out your little place of peace, right in your own little small circumference, and take it everywhere you go, like Linus with his blanket. You have to work on your mind. You have to be able to read, get knowledge of self, get, learn history, languages if you want, increase your vocabulary. Mandatory yeah. increase your vocabulary. So uh, learn current events, 
stay abreast of what's taking place in the world. Be able to have a conversation with people from different cultures, different religions, people's backgrounds. You know what I'm saying? Become become more universal. Get out of your immediate speech group. So work on your mind. Work on your mind. Work on your spirit. Whether you study Sikhism, Jainism, Catholicism, Buddhism, Nectarianism, Elay, Isla, Sangria, whatever you study, you know what I'm saying? Or if you study all of them because you're just curious to see if, if they all correlate or you just want to respect other people's cultures, work on your spirit. Find you something that identifies with your spirit. Find you a higher power that you identify with, a God you can call on, and, and work on your spirit. So you work on your body, bro. Work on your mind. Work on your spirit. The other one, work on your social skills. Talk to people that you normally wouldn't talk to. Talk to people that you don't want to talk to. Learn how to have conversations with people that look like look at you like you trash, and you know they're looking at you like you trash. Learn how to talk to people that you, you dislike, but you know I, I'm going to deal with people I dislike when I'm out of prison, and I have to be able to do it in order to accomplish my goals. Start testing yourself. Start working on your social skills. Start, start having empathy for other people. You know, reach out yeah. and help somebody. Be, be, a, be a wing instead of a weight. Do things uh-huh. like that. Work on your social skills. So the, the final one. Go ahead. Oh, my bad. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I, I know what it is. I can answer a question. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish. You said the final. Okay. Yeah, then the final one, the fifth and final one, is work on employment skills. Work is going to provide a viable opportunity to transition into society and make it as less difficult for you as possible, whether it be – well, I'm sorry, there's actually a sixth one, which, which is similar. But I would say education slash vocation. Make them, that's the final one. Get educated. In addition to doing your personal study, if there's an opportunity to enroll in a, probably like a three-year program, if you can walk right in and immediately apply for an AA program, walk out with a college degree. You understand what I'm saying? Um, yeah. Get into self-help programs because the self-help programs will take like an hour, two hours out of your day. When, and, and that passes the time, and it keeps you positive. It keeps you in a place where you don't smoke, you don't drink, you ain't in no violence. You go into this group, you take your eyes back to your cell, you shower, you work out, the day is over with. Read your book. Fall asleep, keep your eyes open, chin up, chest out. You know, so you start breaking your time down instead of making it. One, work on your body. Two, it's also a stress reliever. Not only is working on your body a stress reliever, but it's also a deterrent. Because once people's also not, you let off stress and you allow your body, but when cats see you in good shape, they might be like, you know what? I may or may not be able to whoop this dude ass, but it's going to be a hard ass fight, and I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. Work on your body, work on your mind, work on your spirit, work on your social skills, work on education slash vocation. You do those five things while you're there. No one told us this when we walked in. Do those five things while you're there and walk out the best version of yourself you've ever been like George Jackson said. So if you got the mic. That's fine. That's fine. Um, one, of the, one of the things I wanted to uh, really hone in, you know, Eli, like, I hope you're taking this conversation. I know you're taking a lot of this information in, but you are actually helping out so many men right now in their current situation. You know, like in prison, you know, we pass around a lot of false information from one person to another. Um, 
what their experiences are like, what the what traumas you're going to be introduced to, but not everybody's experience is the same. Like for me, you know, I came in at a time where a lot of folks was on the way out. So my bid was a lot smoother because the OGs, the one who ran the dorms, the ones who ran the gangs or whoever the case may be, or the troublemakers, as they would say, right, were all away from me. So my spot was actually like a low classification medium. So I had it, I, I had it pretty okay. You know, and you can talk to some of the brothers on this call right now, and they could tell you some straight-up horror stories, Freddy Cougar Jason style, right? Hmm. Um, I don't have as many of those experiences. So there is a balance that you're going to receive from us that you have to take from a grain of salt. The one thing that ranks true is uh, that you need to take from all of this is our regret or what we wish we would have had while we were inside, right? You're not, uh, I know you're very introverted. Well, let me say that. I'm getting to know you. You're very introverted. You are very to yourself, and you really don't trust people. You're going into a space where you kind of have to, right? Because if you do this bit alone, you're going to feel alone. If you don't build a sense of community for yourself, it's really it's really going to, those two years are going to feel like 40, Right. If you don't build a community for yourself or work on your mind and your body and your spirit, it's really going to break you because you're going to put you yourself in a position to never yeah. ask for what you want. You know, as kings, you know, we, we, we ask for what we want, take what we need. That's what we always say, right? But we can't, we, we have to be in the spirit of receiving, right, in order for those things to manifest into our lives and and those are some of the things we really want to pour into you and all the other call callers on this list that that are listening in um i know for me i lived in a uh, in a very provider mindset right and that's one i wish to never live again simply because it never gave me the opportunity to really tell people how i feel ask for what I need, or say the things I need to say. Now I'm living in my head about certain situations that may never come again because it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So in this case, you know, um, the thing that I really wanted to share with you are these three things, um, to be uh, open, to be transparent, to be vulnerable, right? To be open is to have conversations like these. Right, where you can go deep and and talk about different perspectives on life and situations we go through. That's being open because you're willing to share. Be transparent. It's for one person to ask another person a question. It's for you to be willing to share a specific answer. Right, that's them seeing you for who you are, or seeing through you at sometimes. Right, and then but to be vulnerable, that has nothing to do with nobody but you, bro to be vulnerable and to give information about yourself willingly, knowing that this is an outcry, a pour out for help or for someone to help guide you through a situation. You opened yourself up to, to not only me, but to Sam as well over this awesome weekend at All King. You became our brothers because you were willing to be vulnerable 
and compromise within yourself saying, I need help. It's never right. wrong. You're never wrong for sharing that side of you. You, you, you're right. There are going to be people who will mis, misuse you or uh, take your kindness for a weakness or see it as a weakness and try to manipulate it. That's on them. But you know what you're coming here for. You ask for it specifically for what you need and you take it because that's what you came here for. You know what I'm saying? And uh, for all the listeners right now, you know, this is this is the first time I've ever been on a podcast where we want this deep, this open, this vulnerable. And I actually encourage any and any listener on this call to reach out to Eli with your offers of support, with your letters of support, with your with your love, with him give, giving him the ability to ask this community too for help. You know, because even though he's doing two years, this is somebody who has never experienced the incarceration system. So that could be a letter, a book, a card, um, something that resembles hope and communication and connection with others. It's actually a welcome to. It's not just on him. Thank you for that, man. That, that, that was so heartfelt and down to earth. And um, I want to give you both an opportunity to, like, leave the listeners with any last words. And that's why we really did this call. It's so important. Because, again, I've never heard of a conversation like this take place in any public format where you have guys who are incarcerated speak to somebody who's on their way in. And I was hoping to have one of my um, guys who are inside call in so we can actually talk to somebody who is incarcerated right now. And if we have anybody on the line, feel free to press 1 and, uh, and chime in. We want, we want your commentary, too. We're down to the last 10 minutes of the call. And so I would like to take callers, uh, last 10 minutes of the show, I would like to take any callers who have something they want to say, any questions they might want to ask. But I want to give you all the last opportunity to provide some closing words to the people and talk about, you know, why this is so important, not just for Eli, but for all the Eli's around the country, but not just for all the Eli's around the country, but for the people that love Eli around the country. All of the family members who want to know, how do I interact with my loved one that's in the carceral setting? How do I interact with my loved one that's going, going to a carceral setting? What do I do? How, how are they feeling? What are they going through? The people in relationships? This is for all of us because these are the conversations we need to have more often. Again, going to prison is not a rite of passage for black and brown bodies. But unfortunately, it seems like a rite of passage for black and brown bodies here in America. Being born a man is a physical process. Being born a, being born a, a male is a physical process. Being born a man is a psychological process. And for many of us who don't grow up in a household with a parent, a two-parent household with a father that can teach you about being a man, or big brothers who can lace you up on being a man or have that social capital like we spoke on earlier, then that psychological process is oftentimes thwarted. It's underwater. It's, it's trumped by adverse childhood experiences and trauma, and it makes it that much more difficult. So it's important for people like us to come back to the village and lace up the young brothers and the young sisters who are dealing with these things. So I want to give you all the last opportunity, you know, to, to say something to the people, to talk about what you, got out, what you got out of this show, what others should, and leave your contact information, whatever you feel comfortable sharing so people know how to reach out to you all and connect. I just want to ask Devon and you and you uh, Sam, what are some things to avoid, like like um, not borrowing stuff, stuff like that. Like just lace me up with that because I don't want to go in there naive and you know. 
So that's a great question. So that's common sense. You already know the same things that you avoid on the streets is the same things you avoid in the pen, bro. You don't want nobody loaning you no money, you know what I'm saying, because you, you don't like borrowing from folks. Same rules apply. If you do get something from somebody, you know to give it back to them. Same rules apply. You got somebody yeah. trying to slide you something, somebody trying to give you something, but communicate. I'm a firm believer in communication. I get it out the way up front, and I learned that in the pen. When you look a man in his eye and talk to him and you establish the boundaries, we know where we're going. We know where we're going. There's no, there's no surprising. There's no getting around it. And so I'll tell you this. Like if somebody offers you something and you don't know their motives, then you tell them. Um, this is an environment where people have ulterior motives, bro, and you can't really trust yep. nobody. No, no disrespect to you, but I'm not sure why you're offering this to me. Could you, what's up? Why are you offering this to me? And a person going to, you know, bro, it's all love. I'm just giving this to you. Or they're going to let you know, and you're going to be like, I'm cool on that shit. But communicate. It's, it's difficult because I hear you saying that, and then I hear Devon saying be vulnerable, and I mix the two up, and I'm, I say to myself, I can't be vulnerable in a state like that. But then, so let me, you know. I, that's great that you said that. So in actuality, communicating like that is being vulnerable because the the not vulnerable thing would be, oh, nigga, what the fuck is that? Oh, what's up, homie? I'll just, you, I'll just accept it. I won't say anything. I'm not going to admit that I'm uncertain. So it's a, you, there's a place where you be strong, you can be tough, but you still can't find that vulnerability to where you don't come off or, or, or block yourself off from your own blessings. So the fact that you even admitting, bro, I don't even know what you, you know what you presenting this to me for, and I would just like to have an understanding. You're empathizing, you're humbling yourself, and that's, that's vulnerable in and of itself. So that's one form of it. There is a, a way to find that balance of being vulnerable, but at the same time, not not letting your guards down and slitting sleeping on the environment that you're in. Because the reality of the situation yeah. is you're still surrounded by a bunch of, you know, of the best, the best killers, the best con men, the best cutthroats, all the stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll, I'll jump in again. You know, this is us speaking about our experiences. You know, Sam did 20, uh, 26 years in Cali. I did less than three years. In New York, right? You're going to New York. But our, all three of us, our experiences are going to be different from one another. I think the beauty in the information that you are receiving is that there's going to be a specific moment in time when you are incarcerated where one of our voices will be in the back of your head at the right time for you to actually utilize this in the best, in the best matter-of-factly way. Right. Um, Again, I was blessed with the opportunity to be around men who wanted to go home. I I started by um, picking and choosing my circle, handpicking them. All my close friends were facilitators. All my close friends wanted to come home six months early. You see what I'm saying? I did not want to be associated or hang around other people that would make my time more suspicious or put a larger target right on my back. Right you here. You know what I'm saying? You know, I, want, I, I want us to leave it at that, Devon, because you made a great point. Let that be the six elements of the five things that I named to you. You know, they say you can tell a person by their friends, and the people in private prison, the officers and everything, they will look at that, bro. If you're hanging around the cats that they know getting caught with phones or selling drugs or out there gangbanging, they're going to associate with you with that. If you're hanging with the dudes that's going to the chapel or to the mosque, they're going to associate you with that. 
If you're hanging with the people that's going to all the self-help groups and trying to get home, they'll associate you with that. So you do surround yourself by those people who are like-minded, um, especially who are geared towards going home. And that's for anybody that's going in there. Find the people that are trying to go home, man, not the people that are trying to prolong their stay, period. Yeah. With that said, y'all, this is Tales from the Plantation Nation. I really thank y'all for joining us. I want y'all to give y'all Instagrams and y'all handles or whatever y'all want. So, Eli, starting with you. You know, let, let folks know. Uh, Instagram is EDT923. EDT923. And anybody that wants yeah. to reach out to Eli, give them some insight. Um, we'll coordinate, send them some letters, whatever y'all want to do. Make some donations, send some money provide a program that he can participate in over the course of the two years. Whatever you want to do, we here, and we need to do this for him and, and all of the other brothers and sisters that are going in who need this type of support. So, Champ, you do a lot of great work all throughout the community, all through Harlem, man, for the formerly incarcerated, helping the youth and everything. So give the, the, you know, the identifiers for some of the programs that you are part of and your own personal contact information if you would like. All right, I'll start with my contact information. Anybody can feel free to reach out to me via Instagram. That is thankful underscore champ. Um, if you want to try to remember it, it's thankful Christ handles all my problems. So it's thankful underscore champ. Um, that's the best way to reach out to me. Um, if you have LinkedIn, um, it's just Davon Woodley. Um, and... Uh, what was the last part you said, sir? Um, the organizations that you were part of and any organization you wanted to share. Gotcha. So as of right now, um, I'm I'm heavily involved with All Kings. Um, mm-hmm. All Kings is an organization that helps um, men do the work. Um, shout out All Kings. Are, excuse me. And I said shout out All Kings. And so we're yeah. checking out, y'all. This is, I'm going to leave you with these words. This is some insight from Brother Yusuf for you, uh, Brother Eli. Do not talk to the police more than necessary. <laughs> Don't forget that part. Thank you for that. <laughs> and, and this is for everybody across the whole state that got a loved one in the pen or anybody that's behind the walls, man. Things are changing. We out here fighting for y'all. We, we love y'all. Even if you don't think we love y'all, man, we love fighting the struggle and against unrighteousness. And you don't have to be an informant to come home. You don't have to, you know, break your integrity. You don't have to crack case, fold, tell up on a store, and give information to roll, man. All you got to do is just go in and do the work and come on home and, and, and be back here with your family. So this has been Tales from the Plantation Nation. Thank you all for joining. I'm your host, Samuel Nathaniel Brown. Join us every Wednesday, 4 p.m. on Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. on the East. Also, check out Abolition Today on Sundays, 4 p.m., 7 p.m., same time, same back channel. Much love. See you all next week. Peace. Peace. Abolition. Abolition. Listen to the words of the 13th Amendment. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. This means that you are only a citizen if you are not convicted. 
But once you are convicted, they have the right to make you an involuntary servant or a slave. Now let's see how that's being done. Welcome to the uh, United States of Corporate Motherfucking America. Prudential. Smith Barney. Merrill Lynch. Bristol Moss. Maytag. Craftmaster. DuPont. MCI. SBC. When they declared a war on drugs, my nigga, they declared war on us. Drug offenders mean more prisoners. And more prisoners mean more prisons built. More wood, more concrete and iron. More trucks, more gas, more hind. Framers, plumbers, electricians. Consultants, advisors, technicians. More guards, more guns. Pass more laws to lock up more niggas and that's more funds. Now they gotta hire more ones. More handcuffs, silly clubs, and stun guns. See, more calls, more CBs, and sirens. Most drug offenders is non-violent. It's all corporate. The state ain't the owner. This prison's brought to you by Tom Warner. Reverse agreement with the United States in right. terms of what they export and where it comes from. But the mere fact that they say that the, the tariff um, act of 1930 that says that we're not allowed to accept prison labor produced goods, you know, um, imported into the country, means it should mean that you don't think it's right. And if you don't think it's right, then you need to look in your own backyard and see what yeah, you're doing. Somebody gotta drive the buses out to the sticks. Somebody gotta make the ink for fingerprints. So these companies, they donate to candidates. Cash for the ones that's tough on crime in their state. More arrests equal more votes. Pass more laws that hurt more Latin, black, and poor folk. Then cut money for education. So they can spend more on incarceration. The company that feds your kids at lunchtime now, feed them when they grown, locked on the child line. About a half a mil in jail for drug charges. It was only 50 down before Reagan took office. Then he sold guns for dope to the Contras. And crack rock exploded in Oakland and Compton. More gets locked up as expected. This prison's brought to you by General Electric. It just seems like they're they're taking advantage because the mere fact that they don't have overhead in terms of insurance and workers' comp and all these other things, you're having you're getting all these benefits as a result of having the labor. Um, and if you want to say, okay, well, we're training them, we're giving them a skill, we're giving back, it would be one thing. But if you're paying someone 17 cents an hour, that is heinous. It's become a, a new slave workforce. Just lock these niggas up and make them work for us. And they like to rap about it. That'll work for us. Market them niggas helping slave a new workforce. Dope and guns, guns and dope. Keep them high, no hope, bro. And in and out of code, it's all profit. From the dope to the locksmith. Machine so big, Jesus Christ couldn't stop it. It's a parable. See the Pharaoh, the president. If Jesus came back, they label him a terrorist. I ain't religious, but I read the scriptures. From what I read, Jesus would have been banging for us niggas in that safe. And all poor folk on the struggle, they can lock me up. But the Lord forgive me for the hustle, cause niggas just on some feed, they kid shit. Living in the system brought to you by big business. Once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your, your attitude. Once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. Abolition. 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 Tales from the Plantation Nation.